it has been a very busy week two of the Alec Murdoch double homicide murder trial. There is so much to cover. I am going to sprint through the earlier part of the week because the latter part of the week was wild. And though we only record through Thursday, I pick up Friday the next week, but you're not going to want to miss that either because there is so much happening in this trial that was slated for only three weeks. We're at the end of week two. Guess what? This isn't going to be a three-week trial. We're, we're definitely going into overtime on this one. Let's get into it. I'm legal analyst Emily D. Baker. This is The Quick Bits, where I break down just the main points of the pop culture and entertainment cases I'm currently covering on YouTube and The Emily Show podcast. Let's get into it. My big takeaways this week is that the prosecution has not made the timeline easy to follow. This jury in South Carolina does not take notes. That is a choice by this courtroom and is decided locally by the judges. But I have spent a lot of time going through copious notes trying to figure out this timeline because the prosecution has not made the story easy to follow. I don't know if that's a strategy. I don't know if that's because the defense didn't waive their time and this trial snuck up on them really quickly, even though they had over a year to decide to indict him or not. But that's beside the point. Some of the more clearer points have been made by the defense. The defense doesn't have to prove a case. They have to find doubt in the minds of the jurors. The prosecution has to prove the case. And so far, they are not making it easy to follow. And I don't think they've gotten there yet. But towards the end of the week, they are pushing hard to try to get into evidence of character, of motive, and of other bad acts. And that will be very interesting because if it turns the tide and if it is the only thing that turns the tide, it can create big problems for appeal. So there is a lot happening with that. But let's get into the day by day of the trial. Friday of last week, day five, Alex's first interview with police is played. This is in a police vehicle at 1 a.m., the early morning hours of June 8th after the June 7th murders that happened. The prosecution believes somewhere in the area of about 8.49, 8.50 p.m. And again, we have not heard from the coroner yet, so we do not have official times of death in this case. I suspect they will be in that range, but span much later, which the defense will capitalize on. Ellick states in this interview that he tried to turn Paul over, that his cell phone popped out of his back pocket and that Alec put it back down on him, that he tried to take Maggie's pulse, that there was blood all around. He talked very quickly um, into that interview about the boat wreck, the negative publicity, the fact that Paul was receiving threats and lots of threats and had been hit and attacked over the boat case. He gives a rough timeline of taking a nap and then trying to get in touch with Maggie, not getting a response to her, going to check on M, which we learn later in the week is what he refers to his mother as and what everybody refers to his mother as. Texted Maggie again, got no answer. Called Maggie again at 9.54, got no answer. And at this time, he's showing his phone quickly to police as he's in the car giving the interview. Uh, as the interview ends, the police gently ask him if he's okay and kind of pat him on the shoulder and give him um, a bit of support, if you will. We had lots of crime scene foundation laid on Friday, including a crime scene map, a lot of evidence that was picked up, flight rides, bullet trajectories, and things like that. The witness at the end of the day is still on the stand for cross-examination on Monday, May 6th, where cross-examination began of Agent Melinda Worley. 
Dick Harpootlian starts his cross-examination very quickly with, what's so special about being a special agent? And I don't know if that's a joke that would have flown with a jury 20 years ago and maybe have gotten a chuckle, but it was silent. And all of us in the, the chat and on the live stream went, really? Did he, did he really just ask this crime scene specialist? What's so special about being a special agent? After Agent Worley testified, Agent Croft testified, this agent met with Rogan Gibson, who we'll hear from later in the week, did an interview with him, took photos of Rogan's cell phone. Rogan was in very frequent and close contact with Paul leading up to the time of the murders. He arrived at Moselle and made a mental note that John Marvin and Chris Wilson were both already there, both of them attorneys. He got the passcode to Maggie's phone, was able to put it on a sticky note, and then he contacted John Bettenfield, a witness we will hear from later in the week, because he is the one who put together the 300 blackout AR-style rifles that we hear so much about in this case, because one of those is believed to be the murder weapon. We then get into Alex's second interview with police. We know that there are three. We have not heard that third one yet. This is from June 10th, in the earlier in the day at John Marvin Alex Brothers Hunting Lodge. At that interview, he allows Hightower, who we will hear from later in the week, do a download of the phone. He says in the interview that Blanca, their housekeeper out at Moselle, made dinner. It was really noticeable to me how much he said, you know, throughout this interview. There were one or two times where the you know was covering really difficult testimony, but there were a few times where it seems like he just didn't want to finish the, answering the question for me. He talks about falling asleep on the couch, and then he says again that he tried to turn Paul over, that the direction he tried to do that in was toward the kennels. And he also said, you know, I tried not to mess anything up, which really stuck out to me. He also talks about seeing the crime scene, and there is a moment in court where the prosecution is going to argue that Alec confessed, and the defense is going to argue that that's not exactly what happened there. I'm going to let you tell me what you hear in this video. This is Alec interviewing with multiple officers in the car on June 10th, the second interview. And sitting in the day is just tough. It's just so bad. It's so bad. You asked the defendant about the traumatic picture that he saw of Paul and Maggie. What did he say? It's just so bad. I did him so bad. I did him so bad. Yes, sir. So the officer that was in the car for that interview states that Alex said, it's just so bad. I did him so bad. On cross-examination, they asked if it was they did him so bad. And I personally heard, it's so bad. I did. It's so bad. So I didn't know if it was like, I did see it. It's so bad. Or if like, I did it so bad. But I think there's going to be a lot of room for argument over what he heard. The officer was very clear on his cross-examination that he is going from memory, not from what he heard on this audio recording of the interview. However, the cross-examination brought up a really good point. Well, hey, if you think he confessed to a murder, maybe you arrest him for murder. The officer said we didn't have anything else really to corroborate it. Definitely was one of the more interesting moments in court up until this point, because again, this had been a lot of slogging through foundational issues. On Tuesday, day seven of trial, it starts with this same uh, agent on the stand, Croft, 
there was a lot of talk about the difference between like buckshot and birdshot and different kinds of ammunition and what ammunition was at the house and what ammunition wasn't at the house. And then they start going through the Verizon records with the Verizon custodian of records, but there's no timeline presented to the jury. It is just a line by line spreadsheet and the jury can see the spreadsheet. We can't. And it is, it is difficult to parse the important bits of that, but it starts introducing a timeline of who, what, where, when with the cell phones and then switch to John Bettenfield, who is a friend of Alec Murdoch's, actually his cousin who sold him the uh, 300 blackout ARs. And then he talks about the replacement weapon, shows the notes for that, and they go through the timeline of when that replacement weapon was purchased. At the end of the day, Lieutenant Dove gets on the stand and really starts to go through all of the digital forensic. This is the person who did the examination, looked at the downloads after Paul Murdoch's phone was cracked um, by brute force. They extracted his phone. They extracted Maggie's phone. They didn't extract Alex's phone till later because they did that partial download on June 10th but it wasn't an in-depth download and then they needed his physical phone and they got that later and then downloaded a full download of his phone at a later time. And they really got into the heart of that testimony on Wednesday, June 8th. I'm going to go through the timeline that I have put together. This is still my working timeline from the testimony that we have put together and the things that they have highlighted. But again, this has never been presented in this way to the jury by the prosecution making it something difficult to understand. It's a lot of numbers and it's a lot of spreadsheets and the prosecution is disorganized in the way they're putting it together with, oh, what about this exhibit? And then pulling that exhibit away. They could have made a summary exhibit. They didn't. I don't know why they didn't, but it does make it very hard to follow. So here's what I have pieced together. At 7.50.20 p.m., Maggie calls Barbara. Sometime after that, the family ate dinner. There is a gap in Alex's cell phone data from 8.09 p.m. to 9.02 p.m. At 8.17.15 p.m., Maggie's phone is unplugged from power and steps start registering on her phone. I think that this is probably when she unplugged her phone like from the house and headed up towards the kennel. She records steps from 8.17.41 to 8.18.29. It's 38 steps that are recorded on the phone. We, there was a lot of testimony about how accurate those recordings of step are, what generates step recording, that it's distance plus movement of the phone, and it's not specific steps, a whole bunch of it. At 8.30, Paul starts moving towards the kennel. Between 8.30 and 8.33, there are 43 steps taken, which are Paul's. At 8.31, there's a group text. Maggie sees those texts. It's about going to see Alex's father. At 8.31.16, that text is read. At 8.31, 47 more texts come in. At 8.40.20, Paul calls Rogan Gibson and they are on the phone for four minutes and 14 seconds. Paul at this point is up at the kennels. Rogan can hear the dogs. And when Rogan testifies, he talks about hearing other voices on that call and says that he hears Maggie and Alec in the background. And though later he kind of backs away from whether he's 100% sure it's Alec, he ties up that timeline in a video that is sent to the phone. At 8.44, Paul FaceTimes Rogan for 11 seconds. Rogan explains in his testimony that sometimes you can have phone calls out by the kennels, but that video and 
FaceTimes don't always go through. At 844.49 to 845.47, Paul records a video at the panel on Snapchat for Rogan, but it never gets sent. That video is shown on day eight. That video is later shown to Rogan, and Rogan identifies that you hear Alec and Maggie's voice. You hear Paul's voice. They are talking about Cash, who is Rogan's dog, with something going on with the tail. But then they're also talking about Bubba, a yellow lab that ends up somehow with some kind of bird in its mouth. And we'll look at that video next. At 848, Paul reads a text from Megan. They are going back and forth about picking out a movie. This is the last text that Paul reads from Megan. They had been talking about whether to watch A Star is Born, and she texts, no, I need something happy. At 849.27, Maggie reads a last text. At 849.31, Maggie's phone locks. At 849.35, Paul has a text that comes in from Rogan, and it goes unread. So from 848.59 to 849.35, matter of, what, 30 seconds-ish, Paul reads one text but doesn't read the next text. This is where the prosecution is going to key on on this timeline that these murders occurred right around 8.49, 8.50 p.m. At 8.53 p.m., some three minutes later, Maggie's display turns on and then Maggie's phone starts moving. The prosecution believes that this is after Maggie is killed. But at 8.53.15 to 8.53.32, Maggie's phone moves 59 steps and then no more steps are recorded on that phone. At 8.54, Maggie's phone screen orientation changes and the camera activates like it's trying to use Face ID, but it does not unlock. At 9.02.18 to 9.06.47, Alex's phone starts recording things again and takes 238 steps. At 9.02, we start seeing phone call activity on Alex's phone. At 9.04, Alex calls Maggie. At 9.06, Alex turns on his car to go visit his mother. We are waiting for more of the car evidence. We don't have that yet. At 9.06.12, Maggie's phone orientation changes again. They indicated like being picked up. The defense is arguing that this is when Maggie's phone was thrown from a vehicle and ends up on the side of the road. We learn on Thursday that Maggie's phone was found on the side of the road that you would take to go see Alex's mother. So it is the direction leaving Moselle that you would go to see Alex's mother at Alameda. But that's going to be a point of contention. Was that when Maggie's phone was thrown out the window because that's some half mile away? from the gate, not from the house, but from the gate. So even further away from the house. And we know that Alex, uh, we're told that Alex's car turns on and starts driving at that same time. So it's unlikely that he's making it a half a mile in 12 seconds. At 906.14 and 906.51, Maggie has a missed call from Alec. At 907, from 907 to 931, Maggie's screen is off. At 9.08, Maggie gets a text from Alec that he's going to check on M, be right back. It seems like he's maybe already driving at this point when he's texting because the car data, or at least what we've heard about it, says he starts driving at 9.06. So this is almost three minutes later. At 9.31, Maggie's display turns on after being off for 22 minutes. And the prosecution is arguing that the phone is thrown later. So could the display have gone on when the phone was thrown at that later time? That's what they're going to argue, but there was no change in orientation of the phone landscape to vertical. At 9.47.23, Alec texts Maggie, call me babe, which goes unread. At 9.58, Paul receives a text from Rogan saying, yo, Rogan testified that he sent that because Paul hadn't answered his previous text. At 10.34 p.m., Paul's cell phone battery dies. The defense is really pushing forward with the timeline of when the phone is thrown out the window. 
it's interesting because we get testimony later that there are phone calls deleted off of Alex call log. So the physical call log on the phone shows only two calls on June 7th, but Verizon shows over 73 calls that day. So if Alec is trying to manufacture an alibi, why delete the calls out of the call log and not show them? It's an odd thing that has not been answered and just kind of sticks out. On the cross-examination of Lieutenant Dove, I think the defense did a very good job of pointing out that if Alex's phone and Maggie's phone were physically being held by the same person at the same time, they should be recording similar data, and Alex's phone and Maggie's phone don't. And the prosecution didn't really posit an alternative theory for that. Well, the, they might argue it in closing that Maggie's car was already Maggie's phone was already in a car or in a pocket or something. But I thought on cross, I was like. That answers a lot of questions. Were Alex's phone and Maggie's phone doing the same thing at the same time? And they weren't, which leans into the defense theory that it's not Alex. Then Rogan Gibson testified, and we talked about the main points of Rogan Gibson's testimony. It was clear that this was hard for him. There were some moments in this testimony that I think had all of us um, either crying or on the verge of tears because you could see how much he loved Paul as a friend, loved this family and how much time he spent with this family. Absolutely heartbreaking stuff. The thing that stuck out to me is on cross, Rogan Gibson said nothing happened without Paul telling Alec about it, which contradicted Alec's earlier statements that he didn't know everything about the threats Paul was receiving, and he thought that they kept that from him and didn't tell him everything. You know, when we're looking at a 22-year-old, I'm I'm going with what his bestie says, truly, if I'm weighing weighing the perceptions. Nothing happened without Paul telling Alec is what Rogan said. It also struck me on cross-examination when he was talking about any threats about the boat case. He said they weren't real serious. But at the end of the cross-examination of Rogan Gibson, the defense asked a question that then sparked an entire chain of events in court into the rest of the day on Wednesday and all of the day on Thursday and what I think will be a lot of the day on Friday. Jim Griffin asked, quote, can you think of any circumstance that you can envision knowing them as you do where Alex would brutally murder Paul and Maggie? And he answered, nothing I can think of. But what that did, according to the judge the next morning in his ruling and later that day in his ruling, is that it really started to get into character evidence. And there are some things you can't bring in unless the defense put char puts character at issue. And they are putting at issue whether Alec could ever do this. And it's allowing the prosecution to start getting into other things. I thought the prosecution should have followed up with Rogan. Well, did you think he's the kind of guy that would be stealing from his clients at the law firm? No, we didn't get there but kind of. This witness also identified the voice of Maggie, Paul, and Alec on that Snapchat video that was meant for him, but never sent. Let's take a look at that Snapchat video right now. And this is a video in the kennels with a chocolate lab puppy named Cash and Paul Murdoch. Get it, get that. He's looking at the dog, his tail. That's Maggie and Alec. 
There's no chick there. You can hear Alex saying, come here, Bubba, come here, Bubba, to the other dog. And that is the end of that Snapchat video. So you can hear all three voices out at the kennels when Alex said he was not there, which is really the big significance of that video. The next witness to testify is Will Loving, another good friend of Paul Murdoch, who talks about the replacement AR and getting a red dot sight for it because it didn't have the thermal scope and sighting that in. They were the ones shooting it off the stoop, off the gun room that created those casings that we will later hear testimony that matched based on tool marks to the casings found near Maggie Murda. And we know that because we heard it during an evidentiary hearing during jury selection. There was also a Snapchat video, and this was confirmed by the Snapchat custodian of records on Thursday, that was taken at 7.38 p.m. on June 7th. And we're going to take a look at that Snapchat video right now. It is a very quick and short video. Alec Murdoch is out by a tree that is canting over, and they're talking about it. But it shows what Alec Murdoch is wearing at 7.38 p.m., an hour before these murders happen. <laughs> you can hear Paul laughing. <laughs> and Alex saying it's better than it was. <laughs> Alec is in a blue short sleeve dress shirt, long tan colored slacks, and what look like work shoes, like a leather, a brown leather work shoe. Not at all what he's wearing when police arrive. And that Really, not only the timing, but the clothing is the significance of that video. On cross-examination, the defense shows Will Loving a video of a birthday party with Alec and a bunch of Paul's friends at their beach house and his best friend, Chris Wilson. So you see this video of everyone singing happy birthday and gathered around a cake, again, showing a loving family going to character. This is a man who loves his family and could never do this. But again, the prosecution, as they told the court they were going to do, starts asking the harder questions about the other side of Alec Murdoch. And that leads us to a very fiery exchange where the prosecutor can't find a direct question with two hands because he just leads all the way around this. The defense barely objects once, and it leads to a very interesting exchange that we're going to take a listen to. This is the prosecutor on redirect where you're supposed to be asking, you know, direct questions, not leading questions. So yes, you're going to go, Emily, those are all leading questions. Yes, yes, they are. Yes, yes, they are. All in Alec and Maggie, is that correct? That is correct. So your eye, it was a, it was a very good relationship. Is that correct? Yes, sir. It was a good relationship in my point of view. Did you know anything about Alex's finances? Um, no, I did not. Did you know anything about his law practice? Um, no, I did not. Did you know anything about where he gets his money? No, I did not. Yes, at did this you know point. Anything about where he was spending his money? There's no foundation either. No, I did not. Did you know anything about what his bank account balances were? No, There's sir, still no defense objection. Did you know anything about the debt that he was carrying? Do you know anything about that? No, sir. Did you know the specific things that were going on in the boat case the week that Paul and Maggie were murdered? No, sir. Do you know anything about civil discovery 
and and how it can expose financial information. No, sir. Do you know anything at all about him being confronted on June seventh, twenty twenty one, about object? Oh, there it is. Did you know anything about him being confronted on the morning of June seventh, twenty twenty one? About seven hundred ninety-two thousand dollars of missing fees from his law firm. There it is, Your Honor. It's totally improper. The shits out of the horse. The banging you hear is Dick Harputlian throwing his phone on counsel table and looking like he's going to get out of his seat and yell at somebody, but it's not his witness, so he can't. The objection is improper. That's not a legal objection, and the court has already warned both parties and gets quite annoyed with them when they don't state the legal grounds for their objections. And at that point, it is well out that Ellick is confronted at work the morning of the murders over $792,000. About $792,000 of missing fees from his law firm. Your Honor, it's totally improper. Did you know anything about that? No, I did not. And with that, they end the day talking about whether or not they will legally start to get into character evidence, mode of evidence under 403 and 404 of the rules of evidence. And that's where the day ends. So on Thursday, the court starts by making a thorough record of why they overruled the objection and kind of shades the defense a little saying, first of all, the objection was improper itself. Then the court says, I said what I said and cites to their own opinion. And the court made it clear that they were going to do in-camera hearings outside the presence of the jury to allow the prosecution to proffer what these witnesses know about prior acts, motive, state of mind, and character. And that's exactly what happened off and on throughout the day on Thursday. It started with a 404 witness from the law firm. And if you are interested in this case, go watch the entire testimony of law firm PMPED CFO Jeannie Seconder. And Jeannie knew all the things. She talked about how she confronted Alec Murdoch the morning of the murders about the $791,000 that was missing that was supposed to be fees in a case that he was working with his bestie, Chris Wilson. And those fees were supposed to go to the law firm bank account and then costs and stuff come out of it. And then the fees get distributed at the end of the year. Did all very thorough testimony about how all that works, but talked about the fact that they thought Alec was trying to structure his legal fees so that they were kept away from the civil lawsuit going on with the boat crash and that the firm and this CFO wanted nothing to do with that. And that's why Alec was being confronted about it. Once that happened, she started looking into other cases and uncovered the forge and fake forge situation, which forge is a legitimate structuring company that settlements and attorney's fees can go to to structure into annuities. And we heard from the owner of Forge later in the day. Fake Forge is a bank account that Alec Murdoch set up with Alec Murdoch DBA Forge so that the law firm wouldn't perceive that the funds were going into Alec's bank account. They would perceive them going into Forge. So it was steps that were taken to evade detection of stealing money from clients and from the law firm. They went through what money Alec took, what checks went into Forge, that it was over $2 million of checks that went into Forge. This is not the total amount stolen, that the law firm paid back all those clients, that some of the clients were shocked when they heard that they had not gotten their full amount of fees. After lunch, we briefly heard from SLED agent McAllister in the presence of the jury 
And the thing that stuck out to me about this testimony is that when Agent McAllister got to the house and SLED had a search warrant to search Alex's house for, you know, any evidence of an intruder or someone who might have been the murderer or Alex's clothes or anything, they decided not to serve the search warrant because there were 20 to 25 people at the house when she arrived and they didn't want to displace them. So as a courtesy to everybody that's sitting around the house, they decided not to serve the search warrant, which would require removing everyone from the house. And she walked through the house to search with John Marvin, lawyer and Alex's brother, following her throughout the house. She checked the bathrooms and she checked under beds. Did it seem like a thorough search to me? No. Was that service of a search warrant? Absolutely not. Was I stunned that for the courtesy of everyone in the house, they didn't execute a search warrant when a high-profile double homicide had just happened? Yep, stunned. Absolutely stunned. Yep. Maybe shouldn't be at this point, but absolutely was. Then the hearing continued outside the presence of the jury with Chris Wilson, who we saw in that birthday video, who we know was involved in dealing with the fees, because when the law firm called him, he said, the monies hadn't all been distributed yet. Once we saw those two witnesses back to back, it seems like either he was really finely parsing the definition of all the fees being distributed, or he didn't realize the law firm was asking about whether Alex's fees had been distributed. But once Chris Wilson realized what was going on with the fees, uh, it started to roll downhill. What happened is that Alec told Chris Wilson the fees needed to go through the law firm, so they needed to fix it. Alec gave Chris Wilson $600,000. This is after the murders, but was still short $192,000, $191,000, right in there. And Chris Wilson paid that out of his own funds. Alex said he would get to it after the estates of Maggie and his father settled. And that money went back to the law firm. Alec never paid Chris Wilson that $190,000, but they talked about where the loans came from to cover that money that Alec didn't have, one being from Palmetto State Bank that was completely off the books for over $300,000. What was very interesting is that when Chris Wilson was called on September 3rd, when the law firm had realized that Alec had been stealing and he was being forced to step down, Chris Wilson was called and talked to about it. He had a brief call with Alec that day and then drove out to see Alec on September 4th. Alec told Chris Wilson, and this was Chris Wilson's testimony, that he really shit me up. I have never heard the phrase shit me up before in my life, and that he shit up a lot of people. He admitted to stealing money. He admitted to an opioid addiction of more than 20 years. Wilson said that he left angry after that. He said in court he didn't know what to feel, and he said the next conversation he had about Alec was as he was driving home from seeing Alec, he got a phone call that Alec had been shot by the side of the road and was being airlifted to the hospital. This conversation with Chris Wilson, well, he kind of, Alec lays out and admits everything or not, everything that's going on happened in close proximity to that side of the road shooting. And he got a text from Alec saying, so sorry for the havoc I've created. I would do anything to make it right. Chris Wilson testified that he has not spoken to Alec since September 4th. Any communications from Alec, he has turned over to his lawyer. It was an interesting day of testimony. The court's not bringing the jury back till later in the morning on Friday, so we can continue with more of this evidence to see what the jury will hear. Is the jury going to hear from the boss-ass CFO? Are they going to hear from Chris Wilson? We don't know. 
But stay tuned because this trial is just really getting started. And with that, I will see you next week. For deep dives into the stories that I covered here, you can find them on my YouTube channel at The Emily D. Baker and The Emily Show Podcast. I stream every Tuesday and Thursday. The podcast goes live on Wednesdays. And if you want more Law Nerd community, come join us at lawnerdsunite.com. 